Christ has died. Christ will come again. And can somebody testify? Amen. Amen. Hey, it's all going to be good. There's no mistakes. It's all unfolding in perfect harmony. God has you. And that means you have God. And you're walking toward life. Romans chapter 8 is the culmination of the story Paul has been telling us for the last eight weeks. He's been making his way toward this ultimate confidence, which is yours. That nothing can separate you from the love of God that is, is, is yours in Jesus Christ. That because you are in Christ, washed with his word, given the deposit of his Holy Spirit to believe that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Because you believe that, there is now no more condemnation for you ever. And that kind of conviction is that which lets you stand amidst the ruins of this failing world, this muck in which everyone else is wallowing, trying to hold on, trying to create something out of the dirt. You can stand there with your head held high and know you're walking toward a better day. Now we're going to be moving through all of Romans 8 today, verse by verse, so you're going to have to stay with me. I'm going to try not to go too fast, but I also am trying to kind of manage our time here. If you'll turn to page 944 of your pew Bible, you'll find Romans chapter 8. Of course, if you have your own Bible with you, bonus points for you. That means you can write in the Bible. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible to write in, but you want to write something down, look at those blank 3x5 cards in front of you in the pew. There should be a nice pen there, too. Take a note today. Write down a thought that means something. Put it on the fridge. Put it on a mirror. Put it in your pocket. Look at it again this week. That's how the Word of God renews your mind. All right, then. To really understand Romans 8, we got to backtrack just a touch into Romans 7 to remember all this talk about the law. Not only the law, which is the will of God, that is how we're created to be, which ultimately ends up condemning us if we find out that we aren't what we're supposed to be, but how as Christians now, we experience both a desire to follow this law and a lack of the ability to follow or to, to live it out. That is, whenever we want to do good, evil lies close at hand. So, 721, just a little bit before chapter 8, it says, So I find it to be a law. That when I want to do evil, <laughs> forgive me, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, that is truth, in my inner being, but I see in my members, that's my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind. The law of my mind is faith, but this other law is making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Here I am, justified, declared righteous by Jesus Christ with the faith in the one true God, and yet still evil lies so close at hand that even when I do good, I think I'm better because of it and think I should get something out of it. I pat myself on the back and look at that. I ruined the whole thing with pride. Wretched man that I am, what can I do? Can I sanctify myself? Can I purify myself? Can I lift myself up? The answer is no. 
But thanks be to God, verse 25, to thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, he knows, and this is leading into chapter 8, he knows that I myself serve the law of God with my mind. You must hear that as, you are a Christian who is the Son of God, who through faith serves God, even though you're going to find, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. That is the body of death that you still inhabit as you walk toward your grave, which is walking toward the last day, which is walking toward resurrection, the body of death that clings so closely to you, it is going to try to convince you that you are unlovable, unkeepable, and unsavable. And against that, again, fights the Holy Spirit who says, no, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Because of that, because Christ has died, Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Because of that, verse 1 of chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Write that down. Highlight that. Come back to that. Memorize that. There is no condemnation for you in God's sight. Get pulled over by a cop, you still going to get a ticket? Yes. But on the last day, will it matter? No. So should you go get tickets? Uh, if you want to pay a bunch of fines, I suppose so. But in terms of how God sees you, he sees you as his child. You know how American parents, I don't know if other cultures are the same way, but you know how American parents are always willing to give their child a little extra ground than they maybe give to other kids? They're always willing to believe that their kid still was good even though everyone else says, ah, you see what he did. God has done that and then tenfold to you. Or he doesn't just think you're kind of good or you're a pretty good kid or it's not really your fault. He declares you to be eternally and totally righteous, upright, and wise, powerful, true, all again, not from the law of your body, not from the things that you prove, but from his gracious promise to you that Jesus is your new king. Death, Adam, sin was your king. But now Jesus, risen from the dead, is your new king. There is no condemnation for you. I cannot say it enough. Now he's going to talk more about the law, but he doesn't mean the law as Lutherans mean law and gospel here. When he says, for the law of the spirit of life, he means the gospel. Like Paul, couldn't you just said gospel? Well, he wasn't a systematician like we German engineering Lutherans are. And so he didn't mind being poetic sometimes. Yeah, He says, the law of the spirit of life, that is the good news of Jesus Christ, which comes to you as the spirit proclaiming to you what he's done for you, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Neither is that the law of Ten Commandments. That's this idea that just you have sin. Right? The gospel has set you free from your original sin. Now, as he mentions the spirit of life here, this is kind of interesting. He has only used the word spirit five times in the whole book up to this point. He will use the word spirit 21 times today in this chapter. 21 times compared to the five. He has set us up now to believe with conviction that the simple reality of being baptized into Christ and knowing he's risen from the dead is the Holy Spirit inside of you. Nothing more. Now, I shouldn't say that. Will the Holy Spirit do more? Will he convict you of your sin? Will he press you on toward the goal of the upward call? Yes, that's all true. But it all is from the seed that is put into you, which is simply, again, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. 
the spirit of life has, past tense, set you free from the law of sin and death. So now again, the question is, as you walk, do you walk as one who remembers that? Or do you walk as one who lets the world steal it from you, right? As one who is forgetful, which isn't to say there's condemnation for you. It's only to say that you're walking as one who thinks you're condemned when you don't need to. You don't need to be so distracted. You don't need to be so filled with shame. You don't need to be so afraid of man. Will you be sometimes, of course, evil lies close at hand. But again, by knowing who you are in Jesus, your mind changes and you become a different kind of human than everybody else. The word holy doesn't mean better. It means different, different, set apart, right? With a mind that's able to see again that everyone's fighting over scraps and dust and decay and dirt. There's a city with streets paved of gold. It's on its way. All right. So, don't want to get too far to the side here. We got lots of verses ahead of us. Verse 3. For God has done what the law, there he means Lutheran law and gospel, what the Ten Commandments. God has done what you being good, weakened by the flesh, that is your sin, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, right, born of a virgin, and for sin, that is, he became a curse. He became sin when he hung on the tree for us. He was sent into our sinful flesh to take that sin. He then condemned sin in the flesh. That's what the cross is all about. Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That is to say, again, that God needs perfect justice. We couldn't do it. So in order to make it happen, he did it in the crucifixion of Jesus so that he can tell you it happened. It's done. It's occurred. You are clean now. Thus, we then walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That does not mean that now you do good and not evil. It means now you know evil lies close at hand and trust the gospel as you walk carefully towards your grave. There's a big difference between believing Christianity is about getting more and more righteous all the time and knowing it's about getting knocked down every day but refusing to stay down because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. It's about faith. That's it. It's about what you believe. And if you only set your mind on the things of this earth, then that's what you'll have. Which is why in an age when so many messages are coming at you from every corner, from wherever you turn, there's news and information and entertainment and all sorts of stuff. There's so much. You must indeed take ownership of your faith and fight back with it. Yes, you must take words from the scriptures and put them in your own head in your own mouth. Set aside time to read the Psalms in the morning. Set aside time with the family after dinner. Just open one chapter and read it out loud. That is God brainwashing you and it's a good washing. You need it. You want it, right? That's to set your mind on the spirit. The rest of the world, they're happy just getting whatever else is out there. And the end of those things is death. He says that, verse six, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. 
I mean, I, I'll tell you, you know, every morning right now, um, I'm, I've started a new lectionary set of readings uh, for my daily devotionals. It's a little longer than what I was doing before. And every morning, I'm kind of like, oh, my God, it's just a little bit too long. And I kind of want to get to do some stuff today. And, da, 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 da. and I sit down and I read it. And I say, oh, I'm reading it too fast. I'm not really paying attention. I'm just trying to get through it. I'm not even really faithfully doing this. I'm sitting there attacking myself the whole time as I read it. And then I'm done. And I'm so glad I did it. It's just better that way. Again, it's not about you earning something. It's food. And it's food that your flesh doesn't want to eat. But your spirit does. And you'll know when you do. Hmm? Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't actually want to read the Bible. Part of you doesn't want to read the Bible. Be honest about that. Be honest about that. Like, oh yeah, it's true. I really don't want to. Huh? But who is that? Remember from last week, that's sin living in you. That's not really you anymore. The you that's you in Christ, once the Bible's read, says, oh, it was good that I read the Bible today. Huh? The flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That is, those who don't have Christ at all, what are they? They're his enemy. They're on the outside. They are awaiting nothing but eternal hellfire. You, however, verse 9, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. That is, you're a believer. If, in fact, you can even translate that because, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Uh, but how do you know you have the spirit of Christ? I've said it enough times today. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, then, then verse 10, Christ is in you. Christ is in you. You know that because you say that. So since Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, including all of the temptations, all of the trials, all of the evil lying close at hand, that's your body being dead because of sin, the spirit of life, excuse me, the spirit is life because of righteousness. That righteousness is justification. Not your righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. Not your uprightness, but Christ's uprightness. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice. That's St. John, not St. Paul. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which you know is true now, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, he goes on, verse 12, we are debtors, not to the flesh, that is, not to this world, not to your heart, not to your passions, not to your desires. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, not to the devil, to listen to his lies. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, it's very easy there to think that puts you back on a treadmill. Oh, so i got to fight my flesh, and if I don't fight my flesh, I'm going to die, so it's up to me to save myself. That's not what he's saying. In fact, you would fight that very thought by saying, it's not up to me to save myself. Jesus saved me. That's what I know. There is no condemnation for me in Jesus. For that reason, I will strive to fight my flesh when it says do evil, and I will strive to fight my flesh when it says believe you haven't done enough. In both cases, I stand justified, not because of me, but because of what he has declared to be. I cannot emphasize it enough. It's the heart of Christianity. It's the beating life force. It is the good news that it's a free gift. By grace, I'm saved. Grace free and boundless. Oh, soul, believe and doubt it not. Hmm. Verse 14, 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Don't take that as an if, take that as a promise. This means you're a son of God. Is the whole world filled with sons of God? No. It's filled with sons of the devil. But you have been made into a son of God. This means then, verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. This isn't about thinking you haven't done enough. This, if you find yourself fearing you haven't done enough, that's the temptation you have to fight. And you fight it by saying, He is risen. He is risen Alleluia. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Which we already did today. We're going to do it again today. You say, Our Father, who art in heaven. Sometimes slow down and realize that you can't say that. Truly, without the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe you just mouth the words. It's possible people do that. But if you, again, have any inkling that, no, no, the Almighty God is actually your Father. That's the Spirit. He's in you. He's convinced you that God's for you, not against you. Which, again, is just going to go on into more of that from here on. That He is the one you can cry out to, Father, and you know He hears. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God in that confession itself. And if children, then heirs. That means we have something more that's coming. We have to wait for the death of our father Adam, that is, the body of flesh we're still wearing. But when that dies, we inherit the eternal life of the body of Jesus Christ, because we're his son now. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. That provided does not mean you've got to earn it. I can't say that enough. You don't have to earn it. But you do got to expect it. Being a son of God means you're going to suffer. Being an inheritor of the life of the world to come means that all the things everyone else tries to ignore in this world about suffering and sin, you're going to see it. You're going to see it and you're going to go, oh, it's so much worse than anyone realizes. But that is actually good. It's integrity. It's honesty. It's authenticity. It's truth. To suffer what is really there rather than to try to hide it or put it behind some sort of idol. And why is it so worth it? Because, as he's going to say, you heard this read a moment ago, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, verse 18, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That is, again, as I said when I started, it's all going to be good. Whatever it goes on right now, whatever you see, whatever you don't like, whatever you fail with, whatever you do that is wrong, it's all going to be good. The sufferings of this present time cannot compare with what is coming later. It's more than repaying tenfold. It's like exponentially increasing it by a didactic measure of infinite reality, if that even makes sense. It's going from black and white TV that's gray and fuzzy to 3D image virtual reality with color and all the rest. But more than that, this life is a veil of tears. We are walking to the mountain of God on which all things are peace and innocence and righteousness. Our current suffering can't even come close to what is coming to be revealed to us and again in us, in our bodies. So that, verse 19, I love this, so that the rest of creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That is to say that all of the universe, the stars, the sun, the planets, the trees, the monkeys, the, I don't know, seahorses, 
everything is waiting for the resurrection of mankind because everything is bound to our sin. But on the day of our resurrection, they get set free too. Now I'm going to read it again. The creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of you, the sons of God. For verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility, that is death and thorns and all the travail, not willingly, but, <clears throat> but because of him who subjected it in hope. Again now, so sin happened. God cursed Adam and woman and with them the whole earth. He subjected them to their sin. He kicked them out of the garden, not because we wanted to go out or because the animals wanted to go out, but because God wanted to leave us a hope of getting back in. Rather than just annihilate us, he trapped us in our evil so we could come into our evil, so he could eat our evil from the inside, killing it himself. And then coming back out of the tomb, promising that that evil is no longer even there in reality, even though we still see it and feel it. But the future is already here in Christ. And again, that means the eternal good is here in Christ. And so we all are simply waiting to see what has already been declared to be. Yes, that creation itself, verse 21, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what you're walking toward. That's what you're walking in already. You have it, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There is no condemnation for you in Jesus Christ. And you're walking toward a greater experience of that, wherein, again, the old body of death will be done away with, and all you will know is who God is and what he's done for you. And that includes then giving you good neighbors who are worth loving, worth being around. Verse 22, same idea. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Uh, he's just describing how bad life on earth is, not only for us, but for the animals, for the plants. I mean, and the whole thing's in travail. There weren't supposed to be thorns on roses. The lion was supposed to eat grass, not lambs. The whole thing is topsy-turvy, upside down. There weren't supposed to be storms and destruction and quakes. Yeah? We're groaning like a woman in labor, ready to give birth to what? To perdition and destruction? No, that's the beauty of this, to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who through our travail has burst forth onto the scene as the answer to all of our problems. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's the key, key piece there again to make this whole thing make sense. What are we waiting for? The resurrection of our bodies. Well, why isn't it here yet? Because well, there's others who still are going to be saved. That's why. And so key, we keep walking pilgrims through this weary land, knowing that it is finished, knowing that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, and believing that so long as our Lord tarries, there is yet one more soul out there ready to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, and we are perhaps the people who will be able to speak those blessed words. Yes? 
Nonetheless, then, we groan inwardly because we know that it is better by far to depart and be with Christ and better even more by far than that to have him return and have our bodies redeemed. So we wait for it eagerly, calling for it, hastening it even, as St. Peter says. This is the hope, verse 24. For in this hope, that is our resurrected bodies, in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Again, so the idea is that now you have hope. Now you're looking forward. Now you're waiting for something that you don't have yet. If you had it, it wouldn't be hope. Then it would be having it. But we're saved in hope. And it is hope that then is the power to suffer. You want to know how to deal with the hard life that you got? Think about the future that's coming. You want to know how to put aside all of your temptations? Think about the hope that you have of who Jesus is and what he's going to do in the future. That is your antidote. Am I saying that you will never have temptations? No, I'm saying you'll be able to fight them. You'll have something to fight with. And that fight is the hope of your resurrected body. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see his lovely face clothed then in the blood-drenched linen as the hymn goes. Oh, for this hope, verse 24, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is no hope. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See, the other fruit of the spirit that is grown with hope is patience. By knowing what's coming, you become able to wait. By knowing there is more, that is a sure thing, that there's no way it cannot come to be, you gain the power to rest and let it come in time. Likewise, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought. I mean, just let that sink in. God knows you don't know what you're doing. God knows you don't know really what to ask for. God knows that when you ask, you ask for your selfish motives. But that doesn't mean the Spirit of God isn't in you, making it all right anyway. The Spirit of God is in you with those prayers. So that, well, sometimes you get what you ask for, and it's like, oh, I asked for that, didn't I? Sometimes you don't get what you ask for, and it's because actually the Spirit prayed that you wouldn't have it, even while your flesh hungered for it. This is not something to try to, like, see inside of you. This is just something to believe. That the Spirit who is in you, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. The Spirit who is in you is interceding for you. With groans too deep to express. Right? It's the rest of the verse. With groanings too deep for words. And verse 27, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Yeah? So the Spirit is in you according to the Word of God, and I mean those things really go together. The actual scriptures in you is the Spirit in you, interceding for you, fighting for you, sometimes against you but always for you. Definitely against your sin, but always for the new man, always for the new mind, always as the new person who is already raised in Christ. The Spirit intercedes for you, and we know, oh, verse 28, you can just start highlighting here and keep going for a while, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And don't take yourself out of the verse by saying, I'm not sure I love God enough. Poppycocks. It's not about how much you love God. It's about whether or not you know who Jesus is. And you do. You know who he is. 
So then you can know with certainty that all things work for your good according to his purpose. Everything. Nothing goes wrong. There are no mistakes. It can't possibly be ruined. If the whole world should fall into a burning tornado, you could say, Alleluia, I shall rise from the dead. That is a truth that is worth holding day in, day out. That is a hope that is worth holding in every moment of your life because nothing can assail it. You stand set apart. You stand as people of another age already here and alive. For those whom he foreknew, that's you, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, which includes crucifixion, by the way. Not that you're all going to be nailed to a cross, but you're going to die. You're going to die. He predestined you to be conformed to that image of a person who dies saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. A person who dies saying, yeah, I don't get it, Father. Why have you forsaken me? But forgive everybody else around me. You are predestined to live that life. It's not an option anymore. It's not a choice. You don't got to make a decision. It is chosen for you. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ has died. I mean, unless you're just faking that, and I don't think you are, it's a certainty. That kind of conviction. Oh, to have that. You have, maybe you do know, but I think you don't know how many of your neighbors don't have any of that. And they're out there right now terrified of monkeypox. They're terrified because they got nothing. You do. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be, our Lord Jesus, the firstborn among many brothers. That's us. And those whom he predestined, that's you. He also called. That's what he's doing right now, the church, calling you. Yeah, he called. And those whom he called, that is, he's gathering you in the church, he also justified. We've already talked about that, but the Lord's Supper again is going to declare you innocent again today. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Can you take the body and blood of Jesus Christ into your mouth and not have the glory of eternal God inside of you? The answer is no. The glory of eternal God, the hidden majesty that Isaiah saw and fell at his feet is going to go in your mouth today. He's glorified you. Now, verse 31, again, I said you could just keep highlighting this whole section. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? I mean, I, say that with me. If God is for us, who can be against us? Think of all the stories that you've heard in the last three years, all the fears, all the questions, all the doubts, and ask it again. Who can be against me if God is behind me? Now, again, I'm not trying to condemn the weakness of our flesh as we struggle. I'm trying to show us what kind of words you can grab and speak to yourself in the midst of the struggle so that you don't have to sit there like everyone else running around scared. But you can be certain that though the heavens give way and the mountains be cast into the sea, yet Jesus Christ is going to raise you from the dead. What should we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Jesus graciously give you everything? Some Christians live their life as if after they get saved from that point to the rest of salvation, it's sort of like, well, maybe God's going to trick me up. Maybe God is going to set a path for me where I can't make it. It's so backwards. He did not save you to kick you out. He saved you to draw you in. 
And yes, are you going to fall? Absolutely. So that when you look up, you see nothing but Jesus only. Yes? He will graciously give you everything you need, including the humility to hope only in him. And thus to have the patience to wait through your sinful condition in the certainty, the character, the reality, the steadfastness of what is coming. Because he is risen. Hallelujah. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's you. Who's going to condemn you? It is God who justifies. It's not up to you. He did it. He's doing it. He's going to do it. It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Nobody is the answer to that question. No one's to condemn you. Christ Jesus is the one who died. That is, faced the condemnation. More than that, who was raised? He vindicated all of us. Who is now at the right hand of God? that is ascended into heaven and is interceding for us. I haven't said this enough recently. You have a king. You have a king. I know you got to vote this year. I think you should. But all of that's nothing. You got a king. And the king runs the whole universe. And he is already interceding between the God of wrath and you for you. So join him. Ask for what you need. Before you go vote as if it's going to go fix everything, why don't you ask God to put the right man in office? <clears throat> Hear what I'm saying? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35. You know the answer, right? Nobody. Nobody and no one shall separate you from the love of God in Christ. There is no condemnation. This chapter is pure gospel. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, Famine, nakedness, danger, sword, those things seem like they might. They terrify you in your dreams. When you listen to those stories, and that's all the stories you ever hear, they, they become great big boogeymen, but they still can't win. They cannot separate you from Christ. As it is written, you should expect suffering, right? For your sake, that's for God's sake, we, the Christians, are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That is, God is going to let you die. He may let you go to the sword. He may let you starve to death. He definitely is going to let you die somehow, some way, and very rarely is it pleasant for anybody. But in all these things, next verse, we are more than conquerors. When you die, you are more than a conqueror. How? Because you trust in Jesus through it. Because you know that you will survive through it according to the promises he's given you. And I tell you, anyone who's watched a Christian die in faith with the certainty, they say, I know where I'm going, they know what this is talking about. That man, more, or that woman, more than conquers when they die in faith. It changes the room. It impacts everybody who's there. It's a stunning thing to see. As opposed to those who are so afraid, clinging to every last moment. Oh, maybe I can watch some more TV in the nursing home. It doesn't make any sense. You're more than conquerors. Walk toward your tomb. Walk with your head held high. I'm not saying try to die. I'm saying don't fear it for an instant. And when you do, remember, he is risen. Hallelujah. I feel like i got to get a couple new ones to add in there. Somebody testify. Amen. Amen. All right, so in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Verse 37, just two more verses here. And I know you've heard this before. Paul says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us separate you 
from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's just 8 verse 1 again. There's no condemnation. I think I said last week, tattoo it on your forehead. And then I said, well, maybe not on your forehead. Yeah. But the idea is, it is a certainty that the election of God works. That the salvation of God is his choosing to do it. This has occurred for all mankind in Jesus Christ. And the deposit of the Holy Spirit in your heart makes it so that you believe it. Will there be those who resist? Yes. And next week in chapter 9, Paul will turn to that question as he deals with the fact that the Jewish people, who were the caretakers of that election, filled with many believers for many, many generations, nonetheless rejected Christ when he came to them and hardened their hearts against him. And so they'll ask the question, what about those who don't believe? And to some extent, the answer is going to be, we don't know. It's a great mystery. And again, we'll, we'll get to that next week. But the only reason that becomes a question is because you've started to understand just how real salvation is. It's not about you. It's Jesus for you. It's not a choice you make. It's a gift Jesus gives. You're a dead man until Jesus comes along and says, wake up, and then you arise and you're alive. And you know then in your living, or I shouldn't say you know, you will know, you should know, you do know, you're going to know, you're going to remember, write it down. There is no condemnation for you. In Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.